0: Well, hey, it's really great to see you today. Really glad that you're here. Um, we sure miss seeing each other in person, but I'm um, really glad to have an opportunity to continue to um, to work together on how God is in our midst uh, doing things. And I know that during this time of um, COVID-19, we're all sort of, uh, you know, we're in our, our own houses, away from each other, and yet at the same time, getting a chance to sort of uh, experience God in new ways. And so I hope that... Um, this time has found you being able to study your Bible more, uh, pray more, uh, build some good family memories together as you're at home together with your kids and family members. And so i um, so just grateful for that time as well. Uh, my name is Gary Arntisoni. I'm uh, one of the pastoral staff here at CLC, and it's great just to be able to welcome you today. We actually are starting a new series today. Um, This is on the book of Philippians, and so for the next four weeks, we'll be looking at a chapter each week out of the book of Philippians. So today we're going to be looking at chapter one, next week we'll look at two, next week three, and then finally four. There's only four chapters, um, but we're going to try to really glean what it is that um, that God wants us to get out of it. And so um, I'm going to also today just deal with like the first 11 verses of the first chapter. So I would really encourage you to actually sit down, read through the book of Philippians a couple of times, um, get familiar with it, because um, we'll be highlighting certain things, and then there's probably other parts of it that um, won't be highlighted as much, but... Um, but still want you to be able to engage with that whole book as well. So um, at this point, actually, we have a, um, a one-time uh, video on Philippians that's part of KidZone's curriculum, and so we're going to give you a chance right now to watch that video.
1: Paul was living as a prisoner in Rome. He had done nothing wrong. But the Jewish people had tried to kill him because he believed and taught that Jesus had risen from the dead. Many did not believe in the resurrection. Now Paul was waiting to meet with the emperor of Rome. Believers visited Paul or sent him gifts. While in prison, Paul wrote a letter to the Christians in Philippi to thank them for sending him gifts and to tell them, about his work.
2: Paul wrote, I want you to know, brothers, that even though the Jews tried to stop me, everything that has happened has actually helped me tell more people the good news about Jesus. Now the guards at the palace know the gospel and other believers have been sharing the gospel without fear. This all happened because Paul was a prisoner.
1: Paul wrote, Thank you for praying for me. I know that God has given me the Holy Spirit to help me. I hope that I will never be afraid or embarrassed about anything. I wanna be bold and honor Jesus, whether I live or I die. For me, living is Christ and dying is gain. If I live, I live for Jesus. If I die for Jesus, I will be with him forever. Paul said, It was important to the Philippian Christians that he be alive so he could continue to help and encourage them. No
2: matter what happens, live your life in a way that brings honor to the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I am with you or away, I will hear that you are working together to share the good news about Jesus.
1: Paul also urged the believers to not let anyone scare them away from doing God's work. He said, This is the work God has given you to do, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him.
2: God used Paul's difficult circumstances to spread the gospel and build the church. Paul knew that because Jesus suffered to bring salvation to the world, believers doing God's work would suffer too.
0: All right, well, it was great to be able to see that video. I'm going to actually um, invite you to pray with me as we, um, as we begin this time um, and look at um, the book of Philippians together. So, God, thank you for your word that reminds us that you are a God of relationship, that you're with us, you care about us, you love us. And, God, I pray uh, today and, and um, in this time, of worship that you would meet each of us and remind us again of your great love, and so we thank you for all that you do and for being a great God. And we um, we come to you in this time of a pandemic, uh, mindful that you know everything that's going on and that you're walking with us every day. And for that, we give you thanks and we give you praise in Jesus' name. We pray, Amen. So there's a lot of times in the church where um, sometimes we get everything wrong like we just don't do the right kinds of things and I I was reminded of this story and you probably heard this story before but it's worth repeating because um, it's just a reminder of how it is that um, sometimes we get really legalistic with each other and we forget how we're really supposed to love each other so there was a story of these two men that were on a bridge and um, one man looked over, saw the other man. He was actually getting going over the railing as if he was going to jump and try to kill himself. And so he yelled out to him. He said, hey, don't do it. And the jumper, would-be jumper, said to him, yeah, but you don't understand. Nobody loves me. And the first man said, well, God loves you. Do you believe in God? And the jumper, would-be jumper, said, yes, I do. And the first man said, well, are you a Christian? And the other guy said, yes, I am. And he said, me too. He said, Protestant or Catholic? And the guy on the rail said, well, I'm Protestant. And the first guy said, I am too. And then he said, well, what franchise are you? And the guy on the rail said, I'm Baptist. And he said, me too, Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist. And to that, he he responded, I'm Northern Baptist. And the guy that was looking at him said, I'm Northern Baptist too. And then he said, are you Northern conservative Baptist or Northern liberal Baptist? And he said, I'm Norma, Norm, excuse me, Northern Conservative Baptist. And the guy said, Me, too. And then he said, Are you Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Baptist, Eastern Region? And he said, I'm Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region. And the first guy said, I am, too. And then he said this, he said, Are you Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Regional Council of 1879 Or Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. And the first guy, the guy that was outside of the fence said, I'm Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. And the first guy looked at him and pushed him over the edge and said, Die, heretic. So it's one of those funny things, you know, that a lot of times we get so hung up in our theology and we get so hung up in the nuances of our theology that... I think there's times when we get everything wrong and and we don't understand it. And so one of the things I want to actually impress us with today is that um, throughout the pages of the Bible, there's this ongoing story that's being told of a God who reaches out in love to all people and actually draws them into relationship. And revealed in this story is a God who desires to know people and for them to know him and to walk with them. And in the pages of the New Testament, this God is made known to us through the person of Jesus Christ, who came to reveal to us what God is like. And so in this story, God enters into life with people. God walks with them and leads them. They're they're ordinary people like Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, Peter, Lydia, Paul, and many others. And as they got to know God, their lives changed Their outlook on the world changed, and their hearts began to be moved by the pain and suffering around them. They began to reach out with God's love and care in the same ways that God was doing it. And they told others God's story and shared how that story of God had become their story. They became God's people, sealed and empowered by God's Spirit, following and joining in God's work to love and bless all people. God's work, which primarily is about making right all that has gone wrong and bringing justice and peace into this world, and it's really to that end that Paul wrote to the church in the city of Philippi. And so today we're looking at the Book of Philippians, chapter one. Um, As I said already, we're not going to be reading the whole chapter, but I invite you to go um, through each chapter as we do this together for the next weeks, four weeks, and. These are what are known, affectionately, I guess, as the prison letters. It includes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. By the time that Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians, Philippi was already a historical city, um, built and fortified from about 358 BC through 57 BC by Philip II of Macedon. He was actually the father of Alexander the Great, and he named... Philippi after himself there was a Roman victory over the Persians in 168 BC and Philippi became a part of the Roman Empire it also gained a kind of importance and prominence because it was one of the stations along the main overland route that connected Rome with the east and so we first hear about this church in Philippi actually in Acts chapter 16 it's a story of a young woman. She's a God-fearer. Her name's Lydia. Lydia is someone who sold purple cloth in the town of Thyatira. And at that point in time, purple dye was so rare that Lydia is actually believed to be quite wealthy. But she responded to the gospel. She put her faith in Christ and was baptized. And she and her family became the first Christians to, Um, And a small church of people began to meet in her home. You know, it's interesting because in the Philippian church, women played a major role in that church, not only in meeting the physical needs of the missionaries, but also by working side by side with them in the proclamation of the gospel. And so as we start the book of Philippians, um, it's important to note that Paul is actually on house arrest, probably in Ephesus, But at one point, he's going to be headed to Rome, because he's already made it clear that he's a Roman citizen, and being a Roman citizen means that um, he gets to actually appear before the emperor to find out what his fate will be. The book of Philippians captures Paul's joy, even in the midst of being held as a prisoner. And throughout this letter, Paul shows this wonderful, amazing, great confidence in God. For God... Paul knows, is a finisher as well as a beginner. Um, God will finish what God has started, and Paul is confident in that fact. And now, here he is in prison, but he receives from the Philippian um, church, he receives a gift of money. And one of the reasons that he's writing this book is because he wants to say a heartfelt thank you to them. You see, when people in Paul's time were put in prison, um, they often were not normally given food by their captors. They had to rely on friends helping them. And since Paul couldn't rely on his tent-making business to actually bring in any money, he had to rely, rely solely on the support of others. And the fact that the people from a different country would actually raise money, um, send one of their number on a dangerous journey to carry it to an imprisoned friend, speaks volumes for the esteem and love which the Philippians and all of those um, held for Paul. So Paul realizes they have a real partnership. And actually, for Paul, partnership is huge. They're partners in the gospel. They're partners in grace. Um, They are in the gospel business and the grace business. And along with this gift, this gift proves that they're partners in this. So we're going to begin now with verse 1 and sort of work our way through the book. Um, Like I said, we're going to go through chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 primarily. But listen as I read what it is that um, that Paul is writing to this church in Philippi. Verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from god our father and the lord jesus christ so paul really does use a kind of ancient letter form of his time but he adopts it and he transforms it at every single point the writers the recipients the greetings are all um, defined in christian terms and even though this fine point sort of misses our attention Um, The first readers of Philippians, um, after they opened these verses, would have been reminded that the whole of life had been transformed by the proclamation of the gospel. This Jesus who lived and died was buried and then resurrected. In this first verse... Paul uses the term slaves, and actually, I like that term better than the term servants, which is what the New Revised Standard Version uses. But he's doing this to refer to himself and to Timothy, and he's using this term slave, um, effectively teaching the Philippines, the Philippians, a lesson that they need to learn. It's a relationship um, in the heart of the church uh, that those who are in the church um, do not have authority, superiority, or even inferiority, but they have a kind of humble equality. You see, slavery itself was commonplace in Rome um, in the first century. In fact, it was hardly ever challenged or even questioned. There was no autonomy for a slave. Um, He or she was in total bondage to the claims of his or her master. And so Paul uses this um, image as a way of describing himself and Timothy as persons who are bound over to Jesus Christ. They are owned by Jesus Christ. They possess no rights of their own. They're totally at service um, of their master. But there is a really major difference here that Paul also sort of brings out, and that is that um, this is not a negative thing. Um, In fact, this is actually a liberating idea for Paul. Paul. Because, you see, Paul viewed himself and Timothy as those who were slaves of the one who was divine, the one who was the word that became flesh. And this whole idea that Jesus is Lord, or Kyrios, it actually has the same title which was used for slave owners. They were, they were the lords of their slaves. But, but here Paul says, Jesus is my Lord, um, I am his slave. And so for Paul to be a slave to his master is really the only way that he can be a free person. Because in this relationship with Jesus Christ, he is now free from the law. He's free from the stain of sin. He's free from fear of his life. And he's even free right now here as he's living um, in prison, as he's incarcerated. And so Paul is reminding this church in Philippi of a very, very Christian concept. The greatest person... Jesus said is the one who must be the servant of all and the greatest is the one who is the slave of all as well and so Paul goes on in the letter and we come to verse 2 and he says to them you know that here is the um, the salutation he says grace and peace be with you and it's interesting because I remember years ago being in a bible study and somebody saying well grace always precedes peace And I think that's true. Because you see, once we accept God's grace, then the peace of God actually begins to enter our hearts. This term for grace is a word that Paul uses, oh, 155 times in the New Testament. And each time, he's stressing the idea of a kind of free, spontaneous, unmerited favor of God. God is now for them. God has acted in grace toward them on the basis of the death of Christ. And so Paul addresses this letter that we are in Christ. We are graced people. And we are also, he says, um, sending this letter to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. So going on, it's interesting he uses this word um, saint. It's a term used for the people of God. They're called to be holy because they actually belong to a holy God. but, But the saint owes their status to the fact that they are in Christ Jesus. Um, this phrase, in Christ, um, is not really meant to draw attention to the ethical character of their lives, but rather it's really the ground of their, exp- their existence. They are now different than they've ever been before. Um, they are over and against who they used to be. They are set apart. Um, they are now living into this new way, of freedom. So here's the fun sort of fact of this. Every single believer in Jesus Christ is called a saint. Have you ever thought of yourself as a saint? You know, there goes Saint Mary, um, there goes Saint Gary, there goes Saint Christian, there goes Saint Paul, there goes Saint Agnes, See, unlike the Catholic Church where the saint has to be known to perform a miracle or maybe be recommended as a pope, that's really not what's going on here. Paul is saying that anyone who's turned their life over to Jesus Christ is now made holy, is made a saint. Every single Christian is a saint. And and it's hard for us because, you know, honestly, we get this whole idea of saint messed up. I mean, we tend to define saint negatively. We define it by the things that we don't do. Um, It's true that saints are set apart from certain things. There there are certain things that they don't do, but even more importantly, they are set apart to do certain things. It's easy to think of sainthood um, legalistically as if there are things that we avoid, try not to do, but when you turn it around and actually make it into a positive statement, then we're engaging in the purposes of God to bring about God's grace and redemption in the world. This is the action of what it means to live out the holiness that God's given to us, and that's what is meant by a saint. Paul says here it means a partnership. It's a partnership in the gospel, and so Paul says, you know, it used to be that you were not a people, but you are now in Christ. You have a new standing with God, and and this term in Christ that he uses is actually a kind of shorthand phrase that Paul uses to describe the whole Christian existence and the whole Christian life and this phrase is really really important to Paul in fact he uses it 164 times in his letters and he's saying here that the church is not simply a group of individuals who happen to have responded to the gospel it's actually a community of God's people whose corporate life is an essential expression of their divine calling. There is a union between the believer, the church, and Christ, which we will see Paul use again and again in his letters to the churches. So why is this so important? Well, um, it seems that for Paul, there's really three messages he wants to communicate by using this phrase, in Christ. The first is that Paul wants to communicate God's redeeming actions are in and through Christ. Second, because of Christ's death and resurrection, believers have passed from death to a new life in Christ, individually and corporately. In Christ, every Christian lives a whole new existence. They are in Christ, and Christ is in them believers are are made new in christ and as such are a part of the new creation that god is bringing about in the world the third thing is that there actually is a new existence that's meant for all people and for the whole creation and so god is working through this to make all things new god was at work in christ reconciling the world calling us to join christ in partnership by reaching out in love to all people So the Philippians are holy, but it's not because of any merit on their own, but it's because they are in Christ. They have their being founded in who Jesus is, and Jesus is living through them to accomplish what God wants to accomplish in the world. So for Paul, uh, being in Christ seems to have been the key phrase to which he was able to describe the whole essence of the Christian life. So moving on, um, let's look at verse 3 together. Paul goes on and he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. It's a simple comment about thankfulness. Paul's thanksgiving for the Christians in the Philippian community is intensely personal. He wants them to know that he thinks about them and that he thinks about them often. He thanks God for them. I'd imagine that being in prison actually gives Paul a lot of opportunity to think. And yet at the same time, we also know that while he's in prison, he's actually writing, busy writing the books of the New Testament. This is God's grace coming to us through the hands and the mind of the Apostle Paul. So this prayer that he says, this thanksgiving he gives, is is not a community prayer um, for the church at Philippi, but it's really his own prayer. He clearly senses a close, personal, intimate relationship with them and a dependence with them upon God. Looking ahead, um, remembering the Philippians and thanking God for them, he finds himself expressing this in the next several verses. The first thing he expresses is joy in verse 4. He gives thanks with gratitude in verse 5. In verse 6, he talks about confidence In verse 7, he starts to talk about affection, and then in verse 8, he talks about how he actually longs for them and wants to be with them. He says back to verse 4 that he's constantly praying with joy in every one of his prayers for all of them. He's praying in joy in all of his prayers for all of you, he says. Joy for Paul, interestingly enough, sitting in prison— is a constant theme in the Philippian letter. The word in the Greek for joy actually has the idea of rejoicing or rejoicing with. So, you know, how in the world can Paul be happy and rejoicing when he's sitting in the midst of a jail cell? But the fact is that he's not just sitting there. He's also living out the gospel through the Philippians who are carrying on this partnership and their participation in sharing in the gospel together with Paul. Verse 5 says that because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now, Paul understands a great deal of partnership. They were the sharers. That the Greek word is the word koinonia, and it has the idea of, um, of uh, fellowship. But it's even more than that, that they are now proclaiming together the good news, that, that as Paul is being helped by them. They're furthering the gospel by bringing that to bear in the world. And the the gospel itself is something that Paul is continuing to let them know. The good news exists. This good news about the fact that God has loved the world so much that God's son gave his life and died so that we can have life. And so he's reminding them again that the gospel is this good news for all people that comes to us through the actions of Jesus Christ. For Paul, this good news, this gospel, um, is actually something that is not just a good story, but it's actually God's power by which people are changed. And so for him, this is a very real source of joy. Uh, The source of joy comes through the um, financial help that they've given to him, but at the same time, It comes through this partnership, this koinonia. Their gift is a way of furthering the gospel, allowing him to continue to thrive even while in prison and writing these epistles. You know, Karl Barth said it this way. He said that joy is a defiant nevertheless. It's a defiant nevertheless. It means no matter what's going on, I can be joyful. Nothing can steal my joy. And so Paul, when he talks about joy, he's describing a settled state of mind that's characterized by peace. It's an attitude that viewed the world with all of its ups and downs, and yet saw it with hope. It was a confident way of looking at life that was rooted in faith, a key awareness of the trust in the living Lord of the church. Again and again, Paul commands, rejoice in the Lord, for Paul Joy is more than just a good mood or an emotion. It's an understanding of existence that encompasses both elation but also encompasses depression. We can accept with creative submission events that bring either delight or dismay because joy allows one to see beyond that certain event to the sovereign Lord who stands above all events and ultimately has control Of all of them, Paul could look at his situation with joy because he knew that he was right where God wanted him and God was working in him. And so he continues, and we come now to verse 6. And he says to them, I am confident of this thing that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is confident that whatever it is that God has started, God will finish. This is the great promise of the Philippians' transformation. The reference to Christ would certainly remind the Philippians once again that what will happen in the future is actually the completion of what has already been begun. It is in Christ whom they believe. It is the story of Christ that we're going to actually see next week in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. It's this Christ who's expected to return. And so Paul's confidence about the whole future that's out there for him is grounded in what God has already done in the past. God has proven over and over again that God is faithful. Nothing can undo who God is, and nothing can absorb God's power. So we come then to verses 7 and 8, and Paul continues. He says, It's right for me to think this way about all of you because you hold me in your heart. For you all share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I long for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus." So, even here, Paul reminds us that he is experiencing grace. In this present situation, he's suffering for the gospel. He's defending and confirming the gospel. But the result of this commission that he has to be an apostle involves the Philippians as his partners. If Paul suffers, then so do they. Paul sees himself as an extension of the Philippian Christians. Um, they are joint participate, participants with them in the divine grace of God. And so in confidence, with st- extreme trust in God, Paul prays for them. In verse 9, here's his prayer, the beginning. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight. He prays that their their love would flow or overflow, um, that it would overflow with knowledge and insight. It, it would overflow out of them into deeds of kindness. That when this happens, wrong attitudes and actions towards each other would disappear. And perhaps then the problems in the Philippian church would actually be resolved. By overflow, Paul means to abound, to be more than enough there is an overflow for Paul that captures this new thing that has been opened up for the whole world because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. It's marked by an overflowing and rich abundance of all kinds of good things. You see, Paul is going to remind us that grace overflows to all people. The church richly overflows in in hope. It overflows in faith, and it overflows through the word of God that, that actually brings people to a sense of who God is and helps them to capture the story so that they can be a part of it. It overflows in a kind of knowledge and in a kind of zeal. It overflows in a kind of wisdom, and it also overflows in excellence. And the Christians themselves, the Philippian Christians, well, they overflow in their ability to comfort in their ability to live generously, in their ability to be thankful, and their ability to do everything um, in grace and peace and joy because God is active in their lives. So it's not that surprising that Paul's aspirations for the Philippians is that they might be so rich in love (laughs) that they wouldn't actually have anything big enough to store it all. But but rather, it would just overflow and it would be true and move through the community in a way that people would understand God's love and grace in a new way. So this love must not only characterize them, it has to well up and flow out from them in an ever-increasing degree, uh, more and more toward each other and toward all who live in Philippi. They, they are the recipients of this love, of this little church that is continuing to reach out in love and grace. And Paul, you know, has this interesting way of looking at this. I mean, he talks about love actually growing in knowledge and full insight. And, you know, when I read that and thought about that, I'm not quite sure how we really get that. I mean, because when we um, think of knowledge and insight, that's not often how we think of love. You know, we think of love as to have to do with emotion and affection, not with knowledge and wisdom. But for Paul, they're all bound up together. And I think part of the reason for that is because you have to understand that in the Hebrew mindset, um, the gut was actually sort of the center of the person. There wasn't this sense of, of head and heart that were different. Um, that was actually how the Hebrews saw things. They saw things as that was holistically the same. It was later that the Greeks would begin to say, oh, no, this is all divided, and it's all different. But in the midst of all of this, from a Hebrew mindset, Paul would say, no, the head and the heart, all of these things actually work together. And in working together, there's a united kind of thing. It's about the physical being. It's about the thinking. It's about the heart and the passions and everything else. There's a center in that. It's united head, heart, and body. And so Paul reminds them that a true love actually is one that has full insight and knowledge as well. And then he goes on in verse 10, and he says, to help you determine what is best, so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless. And and Paul wants them to be able to make the best possible choices. But he also wants them to be the best people possible. So let's look at this a little bit. I mean, he says, um, you know, that you might, first of all, be pure. And this this whole idea of purity is something that um, relates sometimes to the whole idea of holiness as well. But this verb means to test or examine, um, to prove by testing. It was actually a, a term that was used to assay metals. Um, And to test the genuineness of coins. So to approve meant um, that you put to the proof things that differ. Is it pure in terms of being all gold? Or is there some other metal in there that makes it less valuable? So God has given us, Paul says, the power to discern and decide the things that are really excellent, that are worthy of adoption and worthy of our practice. He's praying that they would have a new kind of insight. An ability not just to approve what's good, but actually to be able to discern what's the best in life. It, it's really a word picture he's painting here. He's, he, it's almost like somebody bringing a garment, like a dress or a gown or something, out into the sunlight to be able to see clearly if it's clean or soiled. To be free of stains for Paul is to be spotless. The second verb that Paul uses translates blameless. It's derived actually from a word which means to cause stumbling or to stumble yourself. Either cause somebody to stumble or to stumble yourself. It pictures a person who carefully avoids putting anything in another one's way um, that somebody might trip or fall over. But it also... Actually describes somebody who is careful to avoid tripping over obstacles that may be in their own way as well. But regardless of the picture of that, Paul's talking about the fruit of righteousness. These are the truly good qualities in the Philippians that result in all kinds of noble acts and worthwhile deeds done toward each other and their neighbors. So Paul reminds the Philippians that their rich harvest of good deeds is in reality the product of Jesus Christ himself, because he is the source of all life and all goodness. But he continues to pray for them that this wise love will result in discernment, that they will know the right things to do and do them. It's up to them to discern the difference between what's good and what's best. And I I think this is a really important point for us, because there's an awful lot of good things we can do. And actually, the good things oftentimes captivate our attention. But we want to make sure that we're not just doing what's good. We want to make sure that we are doing what's best. The things that are life-giving, that, that aren't distracting us from the good news of the gospel. But the Philippians can live with, in a kind of confidence because God is transforming their whole lives. Look at verse 11. It says, Having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, for the glory and praise of God. You see, Paul is talking about this harvest of righteousness, that the very things they're doing are the things that are brought about by right living. That's what this phrase, harvest of righteousness, means. It means that that right living ends up with right action. It's a kind of behavior which, which results from faithfulness, and the status of actually being a forgiven family member. And no matter what it is, Paul wants them to realize that this is a gift from God, and it is all of God's giving. This harvest of right living produces rich results from God's faithfulness at every stage of their Christian life. This is how Christ has come to dwell in them, how they have come to be in Christ. You see, at every stage of the Christian life, it it starts when people first hear the gospel. And then it begins to grow as they believe it and as they begin to live it. And then when they make progress in faith and in love. Nothing is done for the glory of the people that are concerned, but everything is done, as Paul insists here, for the glory and praise of God. And so Paul, he concludes this section by saying this is all for the glory and praise of God and he wants the Philippians to acknowledge and recognize God's power and grace that's at work in their community and their neighbors as they observe that fact also will see God's power and grace alive in the Philippians lives as well grace is a powerful thing there's a great story that's told by um Fiorello Lagardia, And you may have heard of him before. He was actually the mayor of New York City during the worst days of the Great Depression. Um, and actually during all of World War II. He was called adoringly by New Yorkers, the little flower, because he's only about five foot four and always had a carnation stuck in his lapel. He was a colorful character. It was oftentimes that he would ride the New York City fire trucks, or maybe even take an entire orphanage to a baseball game together. But there was a one cold, bitter night in January of 1935 when the mayor turned up at a night court and served that served the poorest ward in the city. And Laguardia actually dismissed the judge, and it, that night actually took over the bench himself, and within minutes. "'A tattered old woman was brought before him, "'charged with stealing a loaf of bread. "'She told LaGuardia that her daughter's husband "'had deserted her, her daughter was sick, "'and her her two grandchildren were starving. "'But the shopkeeper, from whom the bread was stolen, "'refused to drop the charges. "'He said, Your Honor, it's a really bad neighborhood. Um, "'She's got to be punished to teach other people "'around here a lesson.' LaGuardia just sighed. He turned to the woman and he said, I've got to punish you. The law makes no exceptions. Ten dollars or ten days in jail. But even as he is pronouncing the sentence, he was already reaching into his pocket and he extracted a ten dollar bill and he threw it into what was known as his famous sombrero that was sitting up on the bench. He said, here's the ten dollar fine, which I now remit. And furthermore, I'm going to fine everyone in this courtroom 50 cents for living in a town where a person has to steal bread so that her grandchildren can eat. Mr. Bailiff, collect the fines and give them to the defendant. The following day, the New York newspapers reported that $47.50 was turned over to a bewildered old lady who had stolen a loaf of bread to feed her starving grandchildren. 50 cents of that amount being contributed by the red-faced grocery store owner, some 70 petty criminals, people waiting with traffic violations, and a group of New York City policemen, each of whom after giving their 50 cents gave the mayor a standing ovation. Paul writes, and this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight. So what do we make of all this? I mean, I've been talking a long time. I've said a lot of stuff. But I want us to think about a couple of takeaways that I think are important for us as well. You know, Paul's prayer in this passage, though it's brief, it's profound. It's a prayer for a Christian community that it might overflow in an intelligent and perceptive life. That we might have the ability to recognize and choose the truly essential things for life. That it might be pure and never become a means of hurting others. That it might allow Jesus Christ to generate all kinds of good in the midst of the fellowship. That it might be a community committed to honoring and praising God. At the same time, being honored and praised by others who are looking in and who are benefiting from the work of the people of God. Paul's inviting the Philippians to live out their lives as a way of pointing to the reality of who Jesus Christ is in them, through them, and with them. Meister Eckhart, who um, was a mystic, he wrote, if the only prayer you ever say in your life is a thank you, that would be sufficient. We can see how Paul's outpouring of thanks not only strengthens him, but strengthens the Philippians' faith as well and cements the relationship between them and Paul. What are you thankful for today? God continues to bless us and be with us, and there are many things that we can have gratitude for, but we have to think of what they are. The third thing that I'd sort of bring as a takeaway for this is that um, if our love is informed by knowledge and insight, we can understand what we're called to do and we'll always live in accordance with God's purpose. It's the same way that's true of Christians loving. It's not just a simple kind of um, affection or sentimental affection, but it's really love, a desire to do what's best For each person. You know, oftentimes we talk about love being blind, but such blindness can keep us from discerning the deepest needs of those we love. True love, on the other hand, requires knowledge and insight in order to help others reach their full potential in Christ. So the source of our love for God and other people is always God. It is God who began the good work in us. And this righteousness that we enjoy, our right standing with God, is actually God's gift because we are in Christ. We've been united with Christ, as Paul would say. It is no longer, he says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the one who delivered himself up for me. Jesus has taken up residence in in us and because of that we can live joy-filled lives confident of the fact that God will bring about what God has started and then finally this first chapter is permeated by Paul's confidence in God you know he says in chapter 1 verse 6 I'm confident of this confident of this the one who began the good work among you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ so here's the thing we can be confident in God because whatever it is that God has started, God promises to finish that in us. He's confident that God will complete what God started. He's confident of God's grace that's with him, even in prison. He's confident that the prayers of the Philippians will be answered and that their lives will give glory to God. Paul's confidence is not just a vague hope. It's based firmly on what God has done in the past and the conviction that what God will do in the future will show God's faithfulness. God has begun a good work, and God will not desert it. God will not give it up. It will be completed on the day of Jesus Christ. The same Jesus who was crucified and exalted is with us and at work in us. This, friends, is what it means to be in Christ This, friends, is what it means to have union with Christ. This, friends, is what it means to grow spiritually in Christ. Let's pray together. So, God, we thank you that um, your love is greater than anything we've ever experienced. That your love is patient and kind. That it is a kind of love that draws us to you. That it's a kind of love that goes before us and prepares the way for us. That it's a kind of love that gives us wisdom and full insight. And we pray, God, that you would just simply pour your love out on us. That we would know that you're with us and that you love us. And we would know your goodness all the days of our lives. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like to invite the band to come up and um, do the last song.
3: What holds your heart What stirs your soul What matters come to mind The cares you keep The thoughts you think It's not all wasted time Joy still comes in the morning, and hope still walks with the hurting, if you're still alive and breathing, praise the Lord. Don't stop dancing and dreaming, there's still good news worth repeating, so lift your head and keep singing, praise the Lord. roll by We wonder why We lost our way from home A father finds A child inside We left for growing old Wake, wake, wake my soul Walks with the birdie. If you're still alive and breathing, praise the Lord. Don't stop dancing and dreaming. There's still good news worth repeating. So lift your head and keep singing, praise the Lord. Let everything, let everything. Let everything praise the Lord, let everything work, let everything the way, let everything praise the Lord, let everything the blessed, let everything the break, let everything praise the Lord, let everything die, let everything rising, let let us praise the Lord. The hurting If you're still alive and breathing Praise the Lord And don't stop dancing and dreaming There's still good news worth repeating So lift your head
0: you for being here today. Um, I hope that this message um, spoke to you in a way that you have even more confidence now that God is at work in your life. But I also want to encourage you actually in this time to be thinking about spending some time praying this prayer this week. uh, Allowing the words of Philippians chapter 1 verses 9 through 11 to sort of wash over you and to realize that that God is with you. And, And here it is again as Paul says it. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you determine what is best, so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. May this be true in us, um, in all of us. So thanks for being here today, and we'll look forward to seeing you next week as we move into chapter 2 and have a chance to look at one of the oldest hymns in the New Testament that actually talks about who Christ is, why he came, and what was important to him. So we'll see you next week.